0: Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer, and my guest today is Karen Tate. Here's a little intro that Karen sent me. Having discovered the feminine face of God and what that means for women, men, and the species of Mother Earth, Karen became an emissary of the sacred feminine, combining spirituality, feminism, and women's empowerment to offer the world a real alternative to the domination and oppression of patriarchy, the rule of man and the authoritarian father. Her work has taken the form of tours to sacred sites of goddesses of goddess around the world, teaching, giving workshops, and messages from the pulpit, writing books, and she's the host of her own radio show, Voices of the Sacred Feminine, for the last eight years, discussing issues of sex, power, politics, and religion. She's married to her husband Roy for the last thirty years, who she describes as the wind beneath her wings. Oh, and you've written a number of books, which I'll list on badgap.com. Um, and links to them so people can check them out on Amazon. Sacred Places of the Goddess, 108 destinations, Walking an Ancient Path, Rebirthing, Rebirthing Goddess on Planet Earth, was a finalist in the National Best Books of 2008. Goddess Calling, Inspirational Messages and Meditations of Sacred Feminine Liberation Theology will be coming out this spring if it's not out already. And in the fall, you'll be putting out an anthology, Voices of the Sacred Feminine, Conversations to Reshape Our World. So good. I don't think. Um I've ever really covered this topic too much. I did have a, an interview last summer with a woman named Connie Hubner, who says that she talks to the Divine Mother or actually the Divine Mother speaks through her. In fact, at a certain point in the interview, it became Divine Mother speaking and I was <laughs> talking to Divine Mother instead of <laughs> Connie. And everyone's heard the term sacred feminine. But let's start by simply defining it because there might be many definitions of it and we might be saying different things to different people without knowing it. So how, how would you define it?
1: Well, that's very true, Rick. Uh, it does mean a lot of different things. In fact, when I teach about it, when I write about it, uh, I am I am always writing about it from different perspectives. So you can either talk about the sacred feminine as deity. You know, some people believe that there is a god or a goddess in the heavens that actually cares about us and hears our prayers. There's archetype, or if that's a term that maybe might not be familiar to some of your listeners, think of it as like maybe a role model, goddess Provides us role models to emulate. Then there's ideals. What does goddess spirituality stand for? If you are a goddess advocate, for instance, what are your values? What do you live by? And goddesses also, you know, some people feel as if she is like the consciousness of the cosmos, the consciousness of the planet. So, you know, you can go in all of those different directions uh, depending on your audience, depending on. Are we talking politics or are we talking spirituality? You know what I mean?
0: If I were asked to define it, and I'm not an expert like you are, I would try to do so in terms of, (laughs) I think, the fourth thing that you said, which is that we're not just talking about some mythology or fabrication of human- Dogma. Yeah, or just some cultural thing that has no relationship to actual reality, but we're talking about some fundamental- reality, some fundamental principle of intelligence that is part of the governing intelligence of the universe, perhaps the ultimate governing intelligence of the universe. But I would try to, and and we might bring in physics or something, but I would try to actually understand it for my own sake in terms of it being a real thing that we're talking about here. You know, we're describing some very deep level of nature's functioning and trying to understand what it is.
1: True, true. And, you know, and sometimes consciousness kind of falls under the deity category. You know, sometimes it fits there because, um, you know, when Christianity came along, uh, it took all the sacredness out of the material world. And that has given men license to not just dominate women and the species, but also the planet. You know, Christianity comes along and, you know, we're thinking about uh, transcendence. We're thinking about uh, life when we leave this planet. It, uh, as if that's what we're primarily aspiring to, and so it, it what had come before, when people really saw the Earth as sacred, when they didn't really distinguish, you know, between life here as being sacred or not, we've sort of lost that sense of everything around us being sacred, of us being a part of the divine spark, of Mother Earth, of all of us having a piece of divinity within us. And that has really given men and humanity, I'm, I'm using the, you know, archetype man here, that has really given men license to dominate, oppress, exploit. And I really do believe until we can once again see each other as sacred, see the earth as sacred, see the species that are disappearing every day as sacred, we don't have much hope of saving ourselves on this planet.
0: Interesting, I'm reminded of, uh, who was it, James Watt, who was Ronald Reagan's Secretary of the Interior and responsible for the environment, and he explicitly Stated that he could do whatever he wanted with the environment because Jesus was coming and everything was going to end anyway, and he was also notorious for canceling the Beach Boys concert on the on the Washington Mall because he felt they were too decadent and replacing them with Wayne Newton or something who's some Las Vegas lounge lizard.
1: <laughs> well, and and you know you also have the end timers. You know the end timers are just waiting for the end because they're absolutely sure they're going to see Jesus and go to heaven with him. So you know those sorts of people don't care what we do to the planet. You know, they have a very short term view or they don't believe they have anything to worry about. They're science deniers. And, you know, they may be the death of us if uh, we don't convince them pretty soon that they should be worried. And we do have to fix things. Do you think
0: they're convincible?
1: I don't think all of them are. But I think we I I hope there's enough of us uh, that can have enough influence that can you know, take hold of the situation, you know, and we, people like the Koch brothers who are only care about the, you know, the bottom line, uh, you know, they're worried about their pocketbook, you know, we really have to start caring about more than what's in our bank book, you know, we have a responsibility, we are caretakers of this earth. And that is certainly more uh, important than how much wealth we acquire.
0: So you would say, deducing from what we've just been saying, that the schism in today's society between those who think global warming is a hoax and it's real, for instance, is uh, not just a matter of simple scientific uh, ignorance or kind of religious indoctrination. Well, it's a reflection of a deep cultural trend that has been 2,000 years in the making, in which the world, the earth, is seen as mere material and devoid of any intrinsic divine tendency or quality and therefore at our mercy we can do whatever we want with it. Whereas those who would see the earth as intrinsically divine or you know, imbued with intelligence or divine qualities or whatever would no sooner damage it than cut their own hand. It, it's part and parcel of who and what we are
1: correct yes yes and and let me clarify what you said is absolutely true but there's a middle ground there's a balance point Um, you know the the people that we're describing that don't seem to understand that we have finite resources and we have to be more responsible the end timers the ones that don't think anything can happen to us because Jesus will protect us and that we don't you know we can be irresponsible and not pay the price you know and then then the folks who believe that yes everything is sacred well the people People who tend to believe that everything is sacred also realize that yes things have been put on this earth for us to utilize but not exploit for instance I'll I'll give you the mythology just very briefly of an Inuit goddess Sedna uh, s-e-d-n-a there's a planet actually named after her we think of her as the environmental goddess she's the goddess of the people like around Newfoundland Alaska those icy waters around Canada and Sedna governs the animals Animals of the waters, like the Inuit people, the Alaskan people, you know, they live off those animals. They use their blubber, they use their teeth, they use their skin to survive. And Sedna says to mankind, she says, you can utilize the animals of the sea, but you only use what you need. And if you get greedy, I will cut you off. See what I'm saying? So the idea is, you know, it's this difference between, yes, uh, Mother Earth provides what we need to sustain ourselves versus the people who just think, the resources are are infinite. And uh, this idea that, you know, there's this hierarchy, there's God and there's man, and then there's everything else beneath. And man believes because the Bible tells him so, that he is entitled to dominate the earth and rather than be a caretaker of the earth and in dominating the earth, everything who is not him, then it gets exploited rather than cared for. Does that answer your question? I think so.
0: And I'm, I'm kind of reminded of the way nature itself works. I mean, a lion doesn't go out and kill a hundred gazelles just because it can. It kills one gazelle, you know, that it needs to eat and generally the weakest and sickest of the gazelles who can't get away from it as easily. And that sustains the lion and it also improves the gene pool of the gazelle population. Absolutely. Uh, yeah.
1: Absolutely. I mean, na- nature in so many ways really does give us a template for how to live if we would only pay attention.
0: Yeah we're not paying attention. And you know, you can cherry pick the Bible. You can find all kinds of contradictory things in the Bible. You know, there is that thing about giving man dominion over the earth, although, you know, the interpretation of that could easily mean you take care of something if you have dominion over it. I mean, you have dominion over your children, but you don't send them into child labor camps or something. You don't exploit them. You you, you nurture them. But also there's the, the bit in the Bible about God being omnipresent. You know, and if God is omnipresent, and I still haven't talked to a Christian who totally grocks this to my knowledge, then God permeates everything. That intelligence permeates everything. And as Jesus said, you know, whatsoever you do unto the least of these, you do unto me. So if you're doing something to the injurious to the environment, you're doing it to Jesus, you're doing it to God, you're, you're kind of offending the, the, uh, the inner intelligence that governs nature.
1: Well, that part of the Jesus story fits hand-in-glove with God spirituality. It, You know, very, very much in alignment there. But as you said, people can cherry-pick, people can interpret anything they want. I mean, I've interviewed Frank Schaefer, part of the right-wing elite, and he said, Karen, let me assure you that they can even find things in the Bible that justify their idea that they don't have to help the poor, that the poor are just lazy takers. Mm-hmm. You know, we hear that in the news. Now and that you know their riches are gifts from God, and you know the people who are poor. Well, they're being punished by God. Not that maybe they didn't have the same opportunities in life. You know, as if there, as if there's a level playing field out there. You know, between the you know the rich boy who grows up with a silver spoon in the mouth. You know, and the person who grows up uh, in the ghetto. Well,
0: if you watch Twelve Years a Slave, I mean, 150 years ago the Bible was used to justify slavery. So you can use any scripture to justify anything if you want to interpret it
1: the way way you want to interpret it. Absolutely.
0: In your introduction that I read, you said, having discovered the feminine face of God and what that means for women. Can you tell a little bit more about the nature of that discovery? Was it just an intellectual thing? Was it some kind of mystical spiritual experience or what?
1: Well, sure. And thank you for asking that, because I feel like if I could discover her uh, late in life, then uh, I had hoped that other people could discover the great she, however, you know, in these broad strokes that we've defined her, that other people could too. You see, I grew up in the Bible Belt. I uh, spent most of my life in New Orleans. And trust me, you don't hear about the sacred feminine in the Bible Belt. Uh, Now, you do hear about Mary, okay, but Mary is a female archetype that is is a safe woman in patriarchy you know she's benign she's not uppity she's not gonna make any waves that's the kind of woman that patriarchy feels safe with okay I'm about 30 years old my husband and I moved to California where he grew up as a teenager and uh, a whole new world opened up to me I believe it or not I went to a class Looking back on it now, it was just a, a fluff class at uh, someplace called the Learning Annex. I think they have them around the country. And it was about goddess. Uh, it was a slippery slope from there. I started to understand everything about the feminine face of God that had been, I think, purposefully hidden from me in the Bible Belt. Uh, I learned about it from an on an intellectual basis. I also uh, learned about it on a spiritual basis. I found out that there were feminine faces of God across the globe where the only one maybe I had you know heard of was Mary and she wasn't a god and so I started traveling to sacred sites across five continents and it really changes you. You know, it changes you as a woman when you find out there is a feminine face of God and that God is just not in the male form. You start to realize that you've kind of been duped for maybe decades. uh, And, you know, suddenly the life that you had uh, being subservient, being a second-class citizen, well, you might get a little angry because you realize, you know, maybe it wasn't meant to be that way. You start to see it as uh, a strategy to have cheap labor, to uh, have uh, a second class citizens, you know, so then you know then the politics enter into it. so uh, so yes, it's it's a spiritual, discovery and it's a personal development and then you realize that if everyone understood these ideas that there should be equality there should be partnership uh there shouldn't be domination and exploitation then you take that outside yourself and into your communities into all your relationships into the world and you see how the world could be a much different place without this hierarchy and domination that patriarchy automatically brings to society because you see if uh, you you start to understand that if your mythology is only about a male god then you end up with male authority and male authority is patriarchy, rule of the father that means anything from a woman can be chattel uh, to her husband's property and he has control over her, her literal life I mean we see that on the planet today, it's not just in the past, uh, or it might mean that women are only making 76 cents on the dollar, and there's still men trying to determine if a woman should have right to contraceptions or abortion, or what jobs she may be able to have in the world. So it's this discrimination that patriarchy automatically sets up in this domination. I mean, we see domination everywhere. It's whites over brown and black-skinned people. It's one country over another. Uh, it's men over women it's humanity over species on the planet it's this this hierarchy because some people are considered more valuable than others or some things are more valuable than others
0: so if there's a feminine face of god is there a masculine face of god
1: Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: And is it necessarily bad uh, in some of the ways you've just been describing, or is that too, has that too been distorted and perverted to greedy, selfish purposes, and in its pure form it would be okay?
1: Yes, yes, I think, uh, I, I think in its pure form, it could be okay, because we believe uh, in feminist theology, we believe that it used to be about the we and the us, and then it became about the I and the me. And of course, you know, uh, male archetypes like Jesus, for instance, that's perfectly fine. You know, that fits hand in glove with uh, sacred feminine ideals. In fact, uh, many men are starting to talk about how males who have also been hurt by patriarchy, we have to talk about that, you know, that they are developing new role models. For instance, you know, instead of growing up to be this dominator warrior, then maybe he is actually the protector. He doesn't go out and, you know, and uh, be aggressive when it's not necessary, you know, just to uh, what acquire oil or acquire wealth, uh, or, you know, if you get my drift. He is there to protect the family unit. You know, the wife, uh, the female and the children are at the center of society and he protects from the outside where the way things are now. It's the male at the center and, you know, it's, it's women and children on the fringes uh, suffering the most women do 80% of the work on the planet and have 20% of the assets.
0: Yeah, I mean an example of patriarchy hurting men is all the wars that have been fought and mostly by men and mostly started by men and you know fought by men and you know that's the men who die of course It's all the peripheral damage and the collateral damage so to speak that takes place of among all sexes but um
1: but men, but men have also been hurt, not just in that way. Men really have been prevented, just like women, from really being their authentic self. Think back when you were a kid and, you know, you leave the domain of your house, you know, the loving arms of your mother, if you were fortunate enough to have a loving, nurturing mother. And you go out into the world and what are you taught as a little boy? It's kind of survival of the fittest, you know, the bully on the schoolyard. Uh, he's the one that sort of dominates. And what if you're a what if you're a young boy? who you know isn't into sports and you know maybe you're more into the arts or something like that well you know in a lot of places you're going to have a rough time if you're not into being on the football team and if you're you know you're a young man who maybe um, is more sensitive I mean that's just one example of how patriarchy hurts men or if you're gay Yeah, or if you're gay. I mean, Christianity, look at the kids who have killed themselves because they've been told that they're an abomination rather than, you know what, this is a big world and there are lots of ways of being. You don't have to fit into this tiny little box. Mm.
0: Probably most of the people listening to this uh, broadcast, you and I included, would agree that there aren't separate, uh, entirely separate the, you know, ultimate gods for, for each religion that they're all sort of interpreting whatever God may be each in their own way. And these days NASA tells us that there are 40 billion potentially inhabitable planets in our galaxy alone, so presumably there are, you know, countless other ways in which God is understood or interpreted throughout the galaxy, throughout the universe. Um, but here on our planet, you could almost classify religions in, on the Karen Tate scale of patriarchy or, or whatever the feminine counterpart of patriarchy is, matriarchy, uh, by you know their mythologies and their treatment of women. I mean, you know, pr- probably fundamentalist Islam is not too high on the scale. In, in Saudi Arabia, women aren't allowed to drive or probably you know, v- or vote or anything like that. Uh, do you see any, any religion? Contemporary religion on the high end of the scale.
1: I'll answer that, but let me piggyback on what you just said. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not just fundamentalist uh, Islam; it's also fundamentalist Christianity. Right, I mean, right. I've interviewed women on my show who have been uh, in the evangelical movement that they've escaped from groups like the Quiverful movement, and they're like the Dugers, Juggers, Dugers that you yes, see on 19, a Duggers you see on kids t- and counting, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and these women who have escaped, and I literally mean they feel like they have escaped with their lives at great cost and a very difficult thing to do. Uh, They tell me that they, you know, women are basically breeders. And, in fact, they tell these women that when they get to a point where it's not safe for them to no longer have children, well, if they die in childbirth, then they're a martyr for Christ. Mm. These these religions that tell women that uh, they will be coddled and they will be taken care of if they are submissive they tend in a lot of cases to attract men who are dominators men who are abusers and you end up in this vicious cycle I mean, you know, television has made it look like you know, with that Mormon show with the multiple wives, I forget the name of it but you know what I'm talking about they've sort of of yeah, they've sort of glamorized these ideas, but when you really look at what's going on, it's really not like they're showing you on television. And You asked the higher end of the spectrum, you know, where are their religions? You know, I think there can be higher ends of the spectrums in most religions. Within each religion, yeah. Yes, within each religion. There are wonderful uh, Muslims, there are wonderful Christians, there are wonderful pagans, Buddhists, Shinto. There are people doing good work who don't fall into this domination and exploitation and fundamentalism in all religions.
0: So perhaps if as society evolves, as higher consciousness prevails on the planet, which hopefully it is doing, uh, we won't see religions fizzle out, we'll just see their better qualities become more predominant and and their more unfortunate qualities diminishing.
1: I, I hope I hope so. And, you know, uh, I, I've looked into this a lot and I don't have all the absolute answers, but fear and desire for control or a lot of the motivating factors of the people who tend to clamp down and put the shackles on people rather than being open and being willing to be tolerant and try new things. You know, in, in interviewing people, it seems like the only way to reach these people is to try to to start having common ground because once you can find something, you know, that's common ground between you, then maybe you can develop a dialogue and, you know, and, and then you can eventually maybe have compassion and understanding and ultimately maybe even even some sort of, sort of uh, aspect of love. But, you know, you, you have to engage these people think of how successful the gay movement has been in the country when gays came out of the closet and people who were anti-gay started realizing that that person sitting next to them at, at work or maybe their family member was gay when they realized that these people really weren't abominations then suddenly there was support if you know what I mean but as long as we see people as the other as long as we don't get to know one another as human beings because you know we really do have so much more in common than we don't think of mothers around the world. I, I'm given a talk tomorrow at the Goddess Temple of Orange County on the subject of forgiveness, and there was this wonderful story in the news about these two men in Iraq who uh, got into a fight and one stabbed the other one and killed him. And this is in a Muslim country, Sharia law. Uh, the family was entitled to, when this guy was hung in the public square. Uh, this uh, the mother or the family was entitled to kick the chair out from under the killer of their son. Well, the mother goes up to the chair where the guy is standing there with the noose around his neck and she hauled off and she slapped him so hard she probably could have knocked the skin off his face. But you know what? The next thing she did was she took the noose off of his neck and the next scene you saw was her and his mother embraced crying this is the kind of thing we need you know we need to be able to come together in our mutual humanity to save ourselves because who's benefiting from this domination not the 99 percent the one percent
0: that's a nice story and it it brings to mind uh, all these divisions like the you know israelis and the palestinians and the what what are they? the the Shia Muslims and the Sunni Muslims and all this crazy stuff that's going on in these in these countries? a bigger dose of the kind of love that mother displayed the kind of forgiveness that mother displayed seems to me could dissolve these these ancient conflicts
1: um, oh. Well, you know, Rick, it's it's ancient conflicts, but it's contemporary conflicts. Everything is about dividing us. You know, it's all of these wedge issues. You turn on Fox News, it's hate the liberal, uh, hate the black person. You know, hate the brown skin person. Uh, it's uh, you know, it's the science believers against the non-believers. You know, it's the gays versus the straight. It's the Christians versus the Muslims. I feel like that if we could just come together in our humanity and forget these wedge issues, then maybe we could focus on the real problems. But it feels as if uh, people are manipulated. Uh, They're manipulated by, you know, corporate conservative media who wants to maintain control, maintain the status quo. And as long as we're fighting each other, then we don't turn to... Them and say, you know what? We're tired of the domination. We're tired of the exploitation. If, heaven forbid, maybe oil should be free. Uh, we shouldn't allow multinational corporations to steal water and destroy economies in other countries or rape and pillage the planet. You, you know what I mean? There, there was something that just came uh, across the news this week in Oklahoma. In Oklahoma, they're actually charging people who are getting their power from solar. I saw charging, that. yeah. yeah yeah, and so... Go ahead so, and explain
0: I mean, it because others didn't see it.
1: Yeah, um, in, in Oklahoma, they've passed something now in Congress where if you are getting your power from alternative sources like solar, then you have to pay a subsidy like $100 a month as a fine for using solar. Why? Well, because the oil companies own the politicians and they don't want any competition. So how patriotic is that? I'd almost say that's sedition or, or traitorous in a way, because that is self-interest for the oil companies, rather thinking about the greater good. And we have to start thinking about the greater good, not some bottom line of some corporation who is exploiting the environment and exploiting their workers. Well,
0: you know, I totally agree with you, and those are my political sentiments, but ironically, you preface that whole spiel by saying that we have these polarities and we need to somehow reconcile and eliminate these these divisions, these polarities. And yet then you went into the sort of the liberal perspective on the whole thing, which any conservative listening to would say, wait a minute, that's the liberal perspective. I have this perspective. So we, we, we almost need to step back further and say, what is the, the bigger picture that can embrace and incorporate and resolve these polarities? What is the, the larger solvent into which these separate parts can be dissolved so as to reach some kind of um, harmony or unity?
1: But, well, Rick, but wouldn't you say conservatives used to be about conservation? Wouldn't they have uh, want to do uh, the best thing to use the resources of the planet to, uh, you know, it, it things have gotten... I don't know if
0: that's the derivation of the word conservative. If you go back to Teddy Roosevelt's time, he was a Republican, but on the other hand, he was up against conservatives who wanted to commercially exploit all the national parks or what were what he wanted to create as national parks.
1: Well well think of it this way. Remember when greed was one of the seven deadly sins? Yeah. And and suddenly, you know, you get this Ian Rand Gordon Gecko ideas in the mainstream that greed is good? So it, it's almost as if we have to we, we have to shift to common sense. You know, maybe in, in my opinion, granted, I think the liberal view is the common sense view. Uh, why would a government charge their people a fine for finding an alternative? alternative? alternative means of energy if it is saving these people money, if it is, you know, helping the planet. It's kind of crazy because they're putting the needs of oil companies over the needs of their constituents, the citizens, the taxpayers who they're supposed to be representing.
0: Well, if things work out as I, in my most idealistic moments, feel that they will. We won't even have oil companies 50, 100 years from now, even though there may still be oil in the ground, because we will have realized the folly of burning oil to, to generate energy, and newer technologies will have come along, which obviate fossil fuels. Uh, well, It's like every single really serious problem on this planet, to bring this back to a more spiritual discussion, uh, it, as far as I can see, arises from a sort of an individual narrowness, narrow vision. And that, I believe, has spiritual implications because we're told in spiritual circles that our innermost nature is unbounded, is infinite, is a, is a vast source of potentiality. And yet we get narrowed down into what's good for me as opposed to, you know, to heck with everybody else. So it seems to me that the ultimate solution to this narrowness of vision and all the political and economic and ecological consequences of it is to make access to our inner unbounded nature much more common and easy so that it becomes more and more the norm rather than the, the rarity.
1: True, Uh, You know, I think we have to uh, think about ourselves more as a collective, you know, the common good. Uh, Remember the old saying, you know, the golden rule, do unto others as you would, you know, have them do unto me. You know, I I think I said that right. Uh, 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 Unto you. Uh, unto was, you, yeah. I mean, in other words, treat people the way you would want to be treated. Right. I mean, I I learned that as a child growing up. But what happened to that? It seems like some people live by that, but some people feel entitled to exploit. Maybe it's been the way they've brought up. Maybe they think they're a select class. Well, it's, um, it's
0: egoic consciousness again. It's I, me, mine. You know, yes. it, and that's that reflects that attitude reflects a certain level or lack of level of spiritual development or rather childish level, immature, undeveloped level of spiritual maturity, in my opinion. And that, you know, when spiritual maturity blossoms more and more, you become more broad in your perspective, more universal, more all embracing. I mean, look at Jesus himself or any of the saints throughout history. It wasn't about, you know, what can I get for me? It was more about how can I help others? How can I alleviate suffering? You know, there's a kind of a, a natural fullness that once one's own cup is full and begins to runneth over, one begins to naturally serve and want to serve as much as possible rather than just uh, you know, grab all the cookies you can grab.
1: Absolutely, or thing. I, I I have a chapter in my new book, Goddess Calling, comparing Star Trek ideology to goddess ideology. Uh-huh. And uh, remember when you had that scene between Kirk and Spock? If you're a Trekkie, and Spock says to Kirk because Kirk wants to save him and risk the ship, mm-hmm. and and Spock says, "No, it's about the needs of the many, not the needs of the few." Right. You know. And then there's another uh, spiel that uh, Captain Picard says later on in the series when he's talking to someone from the past and he says you know humanity of the future isn't concerned with their personal wealth anymore that's what I think we're aiming for because really you know when you look at the fact that CEOs make more than 350 times more than their workers today and it used to be maybe 50 times more than their worker Really, how many lunches can they buy? I mean, how many boats can they buy? Um, Really, what are they ever going to do with it? More money than they can spend in a lifetime. So what's the point of this exploitation? Uh, I mean, I know myself when I lay in bed at night before I discovered any of this and I had the house, I was married and I had cars. I would lay there and, and, and I don't know, there was an emptiness. There was this hole that for a while I filled with projects. And then I started realizing that when you are in service, and as you said before, when you are in service, I think that hole fills within you. I think we were meant to be on this planet not to work ourselves to death, not to acquire as much wealth as we could acquire. I think we were put on this earth to become the best that we can be, to be our authentic selves, and to empower others, to uplift others so that we can, you know, raise the consciousness of humanity.
0: At least that's what some of us are trying to do. I don't know if everyone would relate to what you just said. Many people seem to have been put on this earth or, or believe they have been put on this earth to uh, accumulate as much. You know, there's that saying, uh, he who dies with the most toys wins.
1: Well, and there's also the one about that Jesus said about a rich man has as much chance of getting to heaven. Uh, what's the eye of the needle yeah, saying? As a
0: camel passing through the, through the eye the
1: Right, right, exactly. Hey, I thought you were
0: from the Bible Belt. <laughs> You're supposed to know these things.
1: <laughs> well, you know, I let that go a long time ago. I don't quote those things much anymore. Yeah. But the thing is, it's fortunately for shows like yours and shows like mine that we do have a voice for these kinds of things because you know we don't see this kinds of stuff in the mainstream media anymore. Even uh, within Christianity, you know, we aren't hearing these kinds of things from the pulpit everywhere. Uh, you know, things are shifting. Uh, We have the new pope now who is telling the folks, you know, forget these social issues. You know, we need to think about poverty. We need to think about how we treat each other. You have progressive Christians who are bringing a feminine face of God into their churches, into their liturgies. You know, so the idea of a feminine face of God really is much more prevalent uh, today than it was even 10 years ago, because And I think really what's behind it is more and more people are willing to use some critical thinking and see what's happening out there. And they realize that we need a new normal and that the values that society has been living by for so long just aren't working for the most of us because things have really gotten too lopsided and we need to bring partnership Back to the equation. And I think maybe that's the key word for all of this. It's partnership between the masculine and feminine, God, goddess, uh, you and I, man and woman, countries corporations. We need to create situations where there aren't winners and losers, but winners and winners. Some people, I think, even call it game theory. I think there's such a thing in game theory about winners and winners rather than winners and losers, because then we're looking out for the whole rather than just me, me, me.
0: And I would say that, you know, this kind of upwelling of critical thinking and and more kind of enlightened way of thinking that too is symptomatic. There's something deeper going on. There, there's a sort of an awakening of, of a, a deep primordial consciousness on the planet which is uh, manifesting itself in a variety of ways uh, just as perhaps uh, you know, in a dry ground which finally receives some rain, all kinds of different plants begin to sprout up. So so the plants are symptomatic of, of some deeper nourishment that's being provided. So I think that deeper nourishment is kind of like getting more and more awake.
1: Uh, I, I I think you're right. I mean, I've been interviewing people on my show. You know, astrologers, philosophers, visionaries, and you know we're you know we're entering the age of Aquarius. Mm-hmm. And it used to just be a song by the Fifth Dimension, you know. But I think it really does mean something. I think in the next few decades, this awareness that we're talking about is going to grow, and uh, you know we're going to have that morphic field idea, that hundredth monkey idea, that tipping point where there's going to be enough of us that care about this, that these other ideas of domination and exploitation, those are going to be, they're going to go the way of the dinosaur. You know, they're going to become extinct. And maybe it'll just be because of self-preservation. You know, maybe it'll just be the self-interest of the 99%. I don't know what's going to be the motivating factor. But, you know, people are saying that the conscious, you know, uh, that our evolution is accelerating and things are Happening quickly, and there's more awareness. There's more transparency, and uh, so I think that's what you're talking about. I, I think that's it, it's a shift that humanity is moving toward. And maybe one example of this is a gentleman I've interviewed on my radio show a few times. His name is Patrick McCullum, and uh, he's a pagan and uh, he's a goddess advocate, and he oversees like all the chaplains uh, in the country in the in the prison system. You know, he's addressed Congress and. And, uh, you know, so, so I mean, he's kind of up there. He told me that uh, 40 years ago, uh, his, his house was almost firebombed for talking about goddess. Today, he's talking about goddess. To you know the highest echelons of society, we had. Uh, there's a quote from Al Gore uh, in his uh, Inconvenient Truth stuff about goddess. People know this stuff. Uh, Bill Clinton was on David Letterman last year talking about this idea of uh, game theory and winners and winners, and it's you know we have a distribution problem. So people might not always use the sacred feminine label. But people are talking, but but they are embracing the ideals that are under what I call the sacred feminine label.
0: Well, pretty much everyone has heard the term Gaia, right, with reference to the earth. And I believe that has a feminine connotation. It's sort of a goddess connotation. Sure. Uh, So I guess the idea is that the earth itself is a being and we give it the name Gaia. I think it was James Lovelock that first applied that term. So... When we talk about there's this upwelling of higher consciousness that's resulting in changes in the way people think and changes in political and economic structures and so on, I kind of like to zoom back and think of that as being Gaia's response to a dire situation that we have created on the planet. It's the antidote. it's It's the infusion or the injection that's needed to counteract the um, potentially lethal consequences of the way we've been proceeding, uh, and that this upsurge of higher consciousness, of enlightened consciousness, is well, it's precisely it's it's deep enough and profound enough and influential enough to be the one thing which could actually turn things around. If if we without that, just tinkering on the level of you know trying to change people's politics or change people's religious attitudes. I don't think we'd get too far.
1: Well, um, I, and, and I and I think an example of what you just said, may be, uh, it's it, it seemed to me when Hurricane Sandy hit the Northeast coast mm-hmm. and all of these people who were devastated, who normally never experienced this, it seemed like suddenly we were hearing a little bit more in the news about climate change. Yeah. You know, as long as it was the people in the South being pounded, pound and pounded, you know, nobody cared. In fact, they said, you know, let's give up New Orleans. We don't even have to go down there and fix it. Nobody wants to live there anyway. But now that, uh, you know, we're seeing, I mean, look at the winter we had this year. Mm. And they're talking about El Nino is going to be worse, you know. Uh, So I I think as people start to suffer the effects of climate change, they're going to be forced to look at this stuff that people like the Koch brothers have been pouring millions of dollars into disinformation. I think they're going to, wake up and they're going to say wait a minute we've been lied to and we better try to do whatever we can you know if we have time left to fix this and and yes it may it may very well be the consciousness of the earth herself who is pulling the strings so to speak you know pulling the strings cosmically from a you know astrological standpoint to you know maybe raise our consciousness but also pulling the strings in in nature so that we have we see a profound effect of what humanity has been doing to the planet and you know that we can't keep doing that anymore. Mm
0: -hmm. Well 90 percent of the cells in our body are non-human you know they're just little microbes and whatnot most of which you know are benign and and essential and uh, we wouldn't live if we didn't have them but we're essentially we're a colony you know we human being is a colony and uh, and if that if you're doing something injurious, something wrong, such as maybe smoking cigarettes, eventually that colony reacts and warns you uh, You know that something is wrong. I think that what we're seeing with the climate and so, and so on is, is like an increasingly stern warning uh, from nature that, and it's, it's also just scientific, you can leave that, all that out of it and just say it's a scientifically describable consequence of what we've been doing to the environment and the consequences are going to get more and more difficult to ignore uh, over time. And so, you know, whatever your spiritual orientation it's going to become uh, more and more uh, compelling to make changes.
1: Well, in, in to, uh, you know, peg, piggyback on that idea of you know, the cells in our body as a colony, I- expand that out, you know. The Hindus, I think, had the idea uh, had the idea a long time ago. They called it the sea of being which is really sort of the oneness Concept, you know um, that we are all part of this sea of being, you know And if we really believe that, you know, we would be living our lives very differently You know if we really believed we were in uh, Interconnected with each other's as human beings with the with the species on the planet with the trees with the rocks with the uh, With the atmosphere, you know beyond the atmosphere If we really thought that we were just this little um, microcosm of the macrocosm that so many of us believe, then we would, you know, we would live differently because we would understand that whatever we do or say has some sort of ripple effect out there, even though we can't see it.
0: Yeah, the Hindus have a pretty sophisticated understanding of it, um, you know, with the whole concept of karma, that every little thing you do sends a ripple out through the universe, which ultimately comes back to you. There's this. There's a saying in the Vedic tradition. Uh, the world. I forget the Sanskrit, but it's the world is my family. And it's interesting because the other night on Rachel Maddow, I caught this some some uh, instances in which Ronald Reagan uh, was speaking and saying that you know if we were invaded by some alien civilization, we'd forget all our petty differences on the earth and all kind of come together to deal with the crisis. What I found ironic was that. You know, he was applying the same mentality to alien civilizations that you know that he was complaining about with our relationship with the Soviet Union. In other words, they too are our brothers. You know, it's not only the world is our family, but the universe is our family. And all he did was kind of expand it out a little bit. True, but but there there really needs to be uh, uh, an appreciation of. The consciousness itself, and you know, speaking of, of Hinduism, there have been a great number of examples of saints who've experienced this very viscerally and, and permanently, it, consciousness itself is not only unbounded but is the essential constituent of everything, is the essential constituent of the universe, it's, it's the stuff of which everything ultimately is made. And I don't know how that relates to what you just said, but I'm sure you can bounce off it and say something good.
1: <laughs> well, you know, I, 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 I do believe that consciousness is everything. You know, I think that our thoughts, you know, we, we do create things with our thoughts. You know, we, we are either proactive or reactive human beings. And if uh, our consciousness is evolved enough that we can try to always be proactive, we create our, our existence to a certain p- point that I, I think is a more positive life for ourselves, you know, our, our everyday life. If we're a reactive human being, if that's the sort of consciousness we have, then, you know, we tend to do, you know, these knee-jerk reactions and we don't always act in our best interests and, uh, you know, we, we don't maybe act in the most evolved sense. You know, that, that may be part of what you're talking about.
0: There's something I was thinking about when I was uh, listening to some various YouTube recordings of you a couple of months ago while cross-country skiing in the local park. We had, by the way, you referred to this last winter. I loved this last winter. I loved it. <laughs> it, was, it was so nice and cold. There was so much snow. I, I had a great time. You were saying, you had this talk where you said God is a, rep, God is a Democrat or something like that. And I was thinking about that. And uh, I was thinking, yeah, but God is also a Republican a Nazi, uh, an atheist. I mean, it's like every expression of of human life, if God is omnipresent, is just one or another quality of the field of all possibilities, which we might refer to as God. Uh, So God is the murderer and the murdered. God is the rapist and the raped. God is, it's like if God is omnipresent, if God permeates, if divine intelligence permeates everything, then everything is the play of that divine intelligence, whether it's armies slaughtering each other or, you know, some heavenly beautiful situation. What do you think about that?
1: Well, uh, let me go in two directions with that. First of all, I have to tell you, so many people have read that sentence and not read any more to get the context. Well, I heard your whole talk. But anyway. Oh, okay. Well, but, well, what I was trying to say in that is if, you know, given the current political climate of what Republicans are doing in the world today and Democrats were doing in the world today, if you were someone who was a goddess advocate, then you had to look at, You know, you had to reconcile your spirituality and your politics. In other words, uh, it's Democrats that are more likely to be for environmentalism. It's Democrats who are trying to get the minimum wage. It's Democrats, uh, you know, who are trying to protect women's rights. You know, so it's the Republicans who are cutting food stamps. It's Republicans who want all the tax breaks for the rich and care about the 1%, not the 99%. So I was trying to say that goddess ideals are more in alignment with the Democratic platform than what the Republican platform was. Okay, but the other thing is it's interesting that you bring this up about sort of this negative and positive, uh, this duality, so to speak. You know, because tomorrow when I give this talk on forgiveness, you know, I mean, we've all had horrible things that happen to us in our life. You know, we've been, you know, victims of someone or something. I, I think what I've started to understand is I think that the difficult things that happen to us in our life you know uh, it, those things happen so that we learn something quite frankly yeah. you know I, I don't think they're just these random things that yeah of course shit happens but I think shit happens for a reason mm-hmm. so to speak you know um, because I you know it goes back to that idea of there's a silver lining in every cloud so the murderer for instance, you know the murderer you know you may have experienced... Uh, Your loved one being murdered and it may uh, somehow teach you something that you need to learn in this lifetime. I experienced a lot of discrimination growing up and I think that taught me about not just my self worth, but also how important it is to give other people a hand up and empower. So I think, you know, I hate to talk in cliches, but this idea of the whole world is a stage and even the Hitlers, even the Republicans, even the Dick Cheney's of the world, the Putins, the, the Genghis Khan, you know, all of Nero, all of these people, you know, I, I believe that they, you know, they, they were like an actor on a stage serving a purpose to teach a greater lesson. And, you know, maybe that's just how I have come to be able to rationalize bad things that happen. But I can tell you, whenever something bad has happened to me, if I look for the gift, I usually find the gift.
0: I agree with you. And a lot of people, I mean, there's that book, Why Bad Things Happen to Good People. I never read the book. But I have friends who don't believe in God because they figure, how could there be a God when such terrible things happen to people? But I think, you know, my answer to them would be, zoom it back farther. You know, because if you're just thinking of God as this good force, then you're not thinking of God as the totality. And Mm -hmm. the totality would have to contain all the pairs of opposites. Hot, hot, cold, good, bad, fast, slow, evil, you know, whatever. Otherwise, God, by definition, is not omnipresent. Right. He's he's off in some corner, or she's off in some corner, and and, you know, being good. And all the other stuff is over here. Then God is not omnipotent. Then God is not really what I would to find God to be, which is the, the sort of all-pervading intelligence governing the universe on every level from the subatomic to the intergalactic uh, and everything in between. One more point, and, and, and that is that, and again, this might just be a cosmology that helps me to make sense of it all, but it actually resonates with a lot of traditional you know, mystical understandings. If this intelligence has created the universe as a way of knowing itself, experiencing itself in in a sort of a living way as a way of expanding happiness and expanding knowledge, then there's not only intelligence, but there's an evolutionary impulse at the core of everything. And therefore, things which may appear terrible in the big picture actually are, and this is what you just said, actually are serving or are conducive or are, are part of that play of the evolutionary impulse working itself out. To take an example, if somebody's murdered, perhaps they murdered somebody in the last life, and now they're experiencing what it's like to be on both sides of that that equation, and a lesson is learned, and they move beyond it.
1: Or I, I think about um, uh, mothers against drunk drivers for instance mm-hmm. their kids who were maybe killed uh, in car accidents they went on to create mothers against drunk driving those sorts of things good things come out of bad things you yeah. know and uh, and so yeah I mean believe me I've a, a friend of mine who I think is very wise sometimes she says Karen you know I would get myself all worked up about what are Republicans doing now and should say should say Karen just relax everything is perfect Mm -hmm. everything is happening the way it's supposed to happen Mm -hmm. and that's hard to do it's hard to just kind of sit back because you don't want to be steamrolled but you know but she but she was saying you know do what you got to do do your activism but understand that everybody's just playing their part in this this cosmic dance if you will
0: there was a um, section in chapter 11 of the Bhagavad Gita where Arjuna wants wants to see Krishna's true form. And Krishna says basically, no, you can't handle it. You don't want to see that. And Arjuna says, yeah, yeah, I really want to see it. Please show it to me. So finally Krishna reveals his true form and he sees all this slaughter, You know, all these beings kind of being crushed in teeth and all this kind of wild stuff and all kinds of good stuff also. But he says, it's just too much. Take it, take it away. I just want to see you back in your normal human appearance. But, you know, it was sort of meant to illustrate that from the cosmic perspective, from the perspective of, of God, the intelligence governing the universe, everything that's happening is happening within that intelligence as part of its lila, part of its divine play.
1: And I feel sorry for people who don't believe that there is anything out there, because I think believing that there's something out there, something out there that does care about us, that is trying to help us evolve. I don't know about you, but that gives me hope. You know, um, I don't like the thought that, you know, everything's going to go black and uh, when this life is over and, you know, this life is really meaningless and it doesn't really matter what we do. I don't know. I, I think all of this is much too sophisticated for it to be to to mean nothing
0: for sure (laughs) somebody suggested that i interview sam harris you know who sam harris is yeah and uh i'm a little intimidated because he could wipe the floor with me but i i really want i'm actually interested in reading his books and just really understanding deeply what the the sort of materialistic perspective is, that there is sort of no kind of uh, God, no intelligence governing everything, that it's all just a mechanistic universe, Uh, if that's his perspective, I I assume it is. Because I think, as you just said, that I mean, you can be a happy person with that perspective, I suppose. Uh, You can be a successful person. But there must be some deep underlying insecurity, I should think. If you think that everything's going to go black when you die, uh, if you think that you are something which can die, then there must be a, a deep, underlying fear, to my, to my way of understanding. I've talked to people who just say, I, I used to feel that way, and, and I could say this myself, and now I'm so nicely sort of grounded in that which I know to be indestructible that there is no such fear anymore. You could tell me I was going to die tomorrow, and it was like, okay, well, let's have lunch.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Because imagine when that person's loved one dies or they get uh, a, a diagnosis of a terminal illness, um, you know, or, or, you know, just whatever the situation where they maybe need some hope that there is something beyond themselves that maybe can intercede for them. I, I don't know. I, I rather like to think that uh, there is something beyond just me and this, cor- you know, this, this uh, bag of water that is my body. And you know, I I interviewed Anne uh, Baring recently, and um, she was talking about uh, this idea that uh, she thinks that there is a consciousness out there, and the consciousness is actually you know trying to help us evolve.
0: That's what I was I don't just saying about that evolutionary impulse. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and I I think people who have that outlook, you know, are actually healthier, happier people, but. But I want That's, to bring it. I'm back. biased. No, me too. But I want
0: to bring it back to not mere belief, because belief doesn't really amount to a hill of beans. Because without experience, it's a castle in the air. It's, it doesn't have a foundation. Uh, and I think really. Experience needs to be the foundation. It's like, you know, I don't believe that I'm looking at my hand. I experience that, I look, that I'm looking at my hand. And it would be absurd to say, you know, do you believe you're looking at your hand? Or do you have faith in your hand? It's, it's a concrete experience. Regarding angels, let's say, which I don't experience, I would have to take that on faith or belief at this point, because it's not my direct experience, although I have many friends for whom it is direct experience. So I think ultimately one should aspire to deepen one's experience so as to make all the mysteries of life, to approach them scientifically and experientially verify or refute them one way or the other. Is there a God? Let's find out experientially. Not, let's not just believe in it.
1: Well, I'm glad you brought that up because I think once somebody does have an experiential experience, then there's kind of no going back. And it's hard to language these things, but I've had a couple. I know people who've had a couple. You read about the mystics who have had this experience of nature, and a lot of their experiences are are similar. You know, uh, Hildegard von Bingen, for instance, uh, Julian of Norwich, you know, a lot of these mystics, even, you know, under the oppression of patriarchy. You know, we're having these, you know, these experiential visitations or apparitions or just a knowingness, you know, uh, of of the world around them that was, you know, beyond what the church was describing as God, you know. And I think when we as individuals, you know we understand that we don't have to have an intermediary uh, between us and whatever that is out there and I think once we have an experience then you know, it just gives us that certainty, that confidence that I think that shifts our perspective, you know, for for all time, especially when we're not looking for it, you know, when it hits you between the eyes, like a a clue by four, you know, (laughs) and, you know, something happens to you that it's hard to even language, but you know, something has just happened. And if you're a rational human being not prone to disillusionment, and, you know, I I think, uh, you, you know, then, you know, yeah. You just you just know.
0: And I should uh, mention that mystics are as abundant today as ever, if not more so, and they're not necessarily going to be wearing bur- burlap sacks, you know, they might be wearing business suits, but there are plenty of people out there who are having cognition and experience of the deepest realities of the universe uh, every bit as clearly and vividly and Perpetually, it's not necessarily just a flash that comes and goes, but it could be a continuum, as any mystic who ever walked the earth.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, we read about that all the time and maybe there are more of them. I don't know if it's because, you know, communication is just better. So we, uh, you know, have contact with more people and their experiences or it's because humanity is evolving more quickly. You know, humanity's awareness, uh, you know, is evolving to the point where more eyes are being open to, you know, that that, uh, it goes beyond the Bible.
0: (laughs) I think both you know i think it's the the technological means of disseminating awareness of this sort of thing are greater you know, our conversation right now is evidence of that and also i think that there's an a kind of an upwelling of higher consciousness an awakening of consciousness taking place on the planet and perhaps the two are you know interrelated that you know this higher this higher consciousness dawning wants to have means to perpetuate itself in a practical way I, i'm kind of anthropomorphizing it by saying it wants to but that this the, techn- the the technological marvels we're using are an expression of that awakening consciousness which facilitates its its propagation it, it's-
1: well, and maybe, and, and think about it this way, you know, maybe it is the, the next logical step, you know, maybe this is just being pragmatic, because, um, all right, we know our resources are finite, okay, so we have to get to the point where growth is not everything, uh, because we can't continue to grow, you know, we have to figure out a way to cut back, uh, and 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 so maybe the next step is really our development as human beings. You know, maybe that is really the next frontier.
0: Yeah, just to play devil's advocate to that, I would say that there's nothing wrong with growth, but it needs to be evolutionary growth in in accord with dharma. To put it, use an Indian term, it, it needs to be have an evolutionary. Quality to it, uh, growth, just growth. Our growth say, growth yeah. can mean cancer. You know, that's a growth, but it's it doesn't. It's not the same as the growth of a child, which has an evolutionary value. So there are potentially technologies which could give us complete abundance on this planet. Everyone could have a much higher quality of life and much nicer houses and much better food and all that stuff. Uh, but we need to kind of. Locate the means to achieve that in ways that aren't self-defeating.
1: Right, and I guess by growth, you know, I was talking about how you know this this uh, ever expanding search for money. Uh, I mean, like here in Los Angeles. I mean, every little every little green space, they're going to put another shopping center on it. Yeah. You know, seriously, do we really need another shopping center? You know, I, I I guess I'm I'm talking like that. You know, can the growth be limited to? Research and development for for the health of humanity, you know, can it be things that are going to improve our lives, you know, the quality of our lives, uh, more people's lives? or, Or is it just going to be things to put money in other people's pockets that are really meaningless? Does that make sense? Totally.
0: I mean it reminds me of last week's interview with Adam C Hall who was a uh, real estate developer in Malibu in Southern California and every you know he was sort of dog eat dog every man for himself kind of attitude and he would have been putting in those shopping malls if he if he could make a buck and then he kind of his whole life fell apart and he underwent this huge metamorphosis and he, and now these days he's back to doing real estate development, but he's taking pristine, undeveloped areas and preserving them and, uh, and doing a little development in them uh, in order to sort of f- f- subsidize and finance them, but in a way that doesn't sort of mar their beauty or, or their purpose. Now, that's growth, too. It's, mm-hmm. just, it's just not, the, it's just not um, the kind of cancerous growth that has been so predominant.
1: Yeah, destructive growth. Yeah, you know. So growth right. is good. Yeah.
0: But greed is not good.
1: Right. Right.
0: <laughs>
1: yeah. We're on the same page there.
0: Yeah, so it's it's funny because then, you know, a lot of the, um, I think, criticisms that conservative thinkers or pundits uh, sometimes level at liberals aren't necessarily valid. It's not. It's not that. We're anti-growth, anti- Money. -money, (laughs) Anti-money, you know, this and that, that we want to sort of go back to a, a primitive culture. It's rather that the growth needs to have a benign quality to it. And we see so much of the opposite that it's gotten, you know, really dire. And there might be some people who have, you know, anti-conservative b- bias who, you know, would like to go back to, you know, a more agrarian society and all, but I don't think that's going to happen. It's, you can't sort of, the, the the you can't get the, what is it, something out of the, the genies out of the bottle or something now. Right. We, you know, te- you can't forget a technology that you already know. Um, right. You, and- go ahead.
1: Well, well, I was I was about to say I think it's about balance. That that's what it is for me, you know. Uh, I, and you go back to the ancient Egyptians. The ancient Egyptians uh, w- were so keen on trying to have balance because they knew that if things went out of balance, they had chaos, and chaos was something they really feared. Well, you know, the sacred feminine. One of those ideals that we attribute to the sacred feminine is the idea of balance, because we believe that. It's so important as well, you know, just like the ancient Egyptians, because you look around society, you look at the income. You know disparity Uh, you know you you look at all the imbalance all around the world and all of its many forms you know whether it be you know some people the power they have over others or everything is just so out of balance and that's what's creating all society's ills and if things were more in balance sure it might mean that some people might have less power or less money but again we're going back to Spock and Kirk it's about the needs of the many not the needs of the few because these few certainly I mean you're telling me a hedge fund manager is more important than the teacher who's teaching your children or the social worker that's you know trying to help the least among us or the fireman who's gonna save your house when it goes up in flames so we, we really have to I think go back and reassess what our values are and you know maybe we were like you know teenage kids in college and out of the house for the first time going crazy with all of this greed is good but I think we have to rein things back back in and reassess and say, you know what, maybe we did drink too much and, you know, we're going to, we're going to just drink in moderation from now on. You know, we're not going to drink till we puke kind of a thing. I mean, I don't mean to be crude, but you know what I mean? The excess.
0: Yeah. yeah,
1: Yeah. We don't need the excess. You know, we, we're just fine doing things in moderation, keeping things balanced.
0: Yeah. I think that's an important point. As you probably know, the 85 wealthiest people on the planet, their their collective wealth equals that of the entire bottom half of the human population, you know, the poorest three and a half billion people. And going back to taking nature as an example, um, nature not only abhors a vacuum, it it abhors imbalance. And when things tilt too far in one direction, nature moves to rebalance them. And I would say nature is far more, um using nature here, in the sense of God uh, that we've been talking about, the divine intelligence governing the universe, is far more powerful than any puny little human endeavors.
1: Well, and, I, and if I could throw in there, sure. just in, in, indulge me for a minute, the idea of nature teaching us something. You know, this whole idea of trickle-down, you know, that's sort of been this fallacy. Did you ever see anything grow from the top down? Or does it, does it grow from the ground up?
0: <laughs> no, good point. <laughs> um, but I, I guess the point I'm making is that there's something going on here, but you don't know what it is, do you, Mr. Jones? There's, there's a move afoot, there's, yes. there, there's a stirring, there's an awakening.
1: I, I think there is. I think there is a stirring and it's exciting, isn't it? I mean, I know some people are maybe afraid, you know, change is a scary thing. But it's, are, are we going to ride this roller coaster of life, you know, white knuckled in fear? Or are we going to lift our arms and scream and just enjoy that ride, you know? I, I think this is an exciting time to be alive. You know, I, I really do. Uh, I mean, you, imagine, and I mean, this, this maybe I'm just a wonk, okay? But when I saw Jimmy Carter on David Letterman the other night, talking about female vaginal mutilation in his new book, and you know, I, I thought to myself, you know what? I could just imagine the, the eyes pop open across the country when he's in detail you know, talking about female genital mutilation. This idea of this discriminative, uh, discrimination of women across the globe. I mean, it, it's exciting because there's such there's a transparency now, you know, that that all of these this ugliness can't be hidden anymore. And I think we're going to get to a point where enough people are going to be fed up with all of this ugliness, and we're going to see the change. And I, I have hope for humanity. I really do.
0: I do too. Nobody likes a really uneven uh, boxing match or race or anything else, and so nature seems to entertain itself with really close calls.
1: <laughs> yeah,
0: and uh, it, it, it seems like God—it could go either way. You know, we, if the way the global warming is uh, is progressing, we could all ex- we could exterminate ourselves. But I, I I have hope, at least if not belief, that the pace of awakening will continue to accelerate, to match and ultimately surmount the pace of the, the negative influence, which would the destructive influence.
1: Well, I hope so, too. And I think shows like yours and mine and uh, there are a lot of wonderful things, uh, you know, coming on television now that I think are speaking to different ideals and uh, and raising awareness. You know, uh, you know, everything isn't on on television, isn't the Kardashians, you know, Uh, you know, more and more people, I think, uh, are are waking up, Um, you know, at at least I know we are in California.
0: (laughs) Sure. Well, we get the television out here and I. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, Oprah had Adyashanti on last week
1: yeah well yeah, uh, yeah obviously I, I just sort of meant you know sort of this red state blue state mentality because yeah, I remember, you remember I used to live in Louisiana you know um, and I, 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 I still have friends there and it's this this constant struggle to you know raise awareness because these are good people you know, and but but they're they're just living in this bubble, and um, you know we we just have to pierce that bubble and let a little information in.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, you know, in places like Texas, you know, which are which a fairly conservative state, now they're beginning to see the you know the effects of global warming. There's just been this severe drought, and the whole cattle industry is flopping, uh, or fracking. You know, there's so many people in Texas who've been adversely impacted by fracking, and so you know if. Uh, if, if you don't like uh, recognize these things initially, it's going to, the, the slaps across the face are going to get a little bit more insistent in, until you actually have to recognize them. And so, I don't think that anybody anywhere is going to be able to. Um, I mean, what if Greenland really melts? You know, the way they're predicting it, and and uh, the, the sea level rises by uh, several meters and most of the the world's population is going to be inundated and have to migrate. At that point, will anybody be able to deny what's going on?
1: I, th- I think so. Um, I was just talking to Bob Hieronymus on 21st Century Radio um, on uh, Easter Easter Sunday, and uh, that was one of the points he made. He said, will the South be able to continue to be in denial when we lose the Gulf states, when Florida goes under, you know, or, you know, maybe Staten Island and the Statue of Liberty. Can you imagine that picture? The Statue of Liberty, you know, is 10 feet below water or something like that. I, I, I really do believe it. It, it may be we let it go that far you know but but i think then I, I don't know. I, I just have to think that people are going to then wake up and see who's been lying to them and there's going to be a radical shift. And they say the millennials, you know, the millennials are really, you know, they're going to be our future because already these, these young people uh, have grown up at a time where they didn't enjoy the, the robust, robust middle class and they are suffering from this huge student loan debt and very little opportunity. And they see that, you know, with this quagmire in government, Republicans are blocking, you know, any hope for change. And everything I read says that they want a government that is going to work for them. They tend to have a little bit more of a socialist leaning where they want to, you know, use government to better their lives rather than, you know, continuing this path that we're on. And I guess, um, you know, to me, that sort of feels like the needs of the many, not the needs of the few. So, maybe it's just a generation away.
0: Yeah. And, you know, we, we, we don't have to look far back in history to see how radically things can change in a generation, you know? The 40s compared to the 60s, the 60s compared to now, the 1800s compared to the 1900s. The, it doesn't take too many generations for really radical change that is pretty much unforeseeable by, by almost everyone except the greatest visionaries to actually come to pass.
1: Yeah, I think it's that perfect storm idea. You know, I, I think it just—it's just, just going to take the right things to happen at the right time, and I think something can ignite really quickly. I just hope it happens in my lifetime. I want to be around to to ride that uh, roller coaster.
0: <laughs> That's an interesting. Uh, we were talk- i was talking with Adam Hall last week about the the, the metaphor of surfing and that the and that you know if you you want to catch a wave at the right time while it's while the surf's up. And we were talking about how the surf is really up right now there there's definitely if you're if you're interested in catching a wave, it's a very good time to do it and I'm speaking in terms of kind of hopping on this spiritual bandwagon to switch metaphors and and taking advantage of the great evolutionary opportunity that that presents itself. Crisis usually brings with it opportunity in fact, I think it was. Elizabeth Satoris, who said that the Greek word for crisis means opportunity, something like that. And we're in a very critical situation, but we're in an equally
1: opportune time. Maybe humanity does better under pressure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I,
0: you know, when you're in high school, when did you actually get down to working on that term? paper? <laughs>
1: <laughs> when you really had to yeah, yeah. The night before yeah. maybe <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely and and you know and i I think you know more people or uh or are, are being willing to I, I think challenge taboos you know uh i I don't think all of the institutions that used to so totally control us—I'm not sure they have the power they used to have. I think I think that's all crumbling, you know, little by little. And uh, I think that that's part of it. Now it's scary in a way because you know if things do crumble, then what what replaces the the vacuum? But but that's again, you know, you know my shtick is you know the you go back to the ideas of the sacred feminine alongside the divine masculine you know it's these these values that we call sacred feminine values that we have been missing in society that have been devalued in society when you put those alongside the masculine values again what do you have you have balance you know and you know, because we it used to be that uh, we didn't talk about intuition, inspiration. You know, if you talked about nurturing and caring, well, that was weakness. You know well, we we realize that we really do need those things as much as we need cognitive thinking and you know assertiveness and all of the things that the masculine brings to the equation. But we can't just live. And the masculine frame of mind, we have to have the feminine frame of mind along with it, whether we're talking about in our own psyches or whether we're talking about the values out there in society. Hmm. Yeah,
0: I'm glad you brought it back to that because we've been talking about all sorts of things. It's not an either or situation. It's really just a, a matter of balance.
1: Yes, yeah. yes, because it's 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 been out of balance, and you know I think we've accepted the way we're living as normal for so long. But what people don't realize is there, a feminine face of God was worshipped as long ago as thirty thousand years, long before there was ever a male God. And I know I didn't know that growing up. I it was I was thirty years old before I understood that. And you go in the and in, in, you know it's, and people maybe raise an eyebrow and say, oh, that's crazy talk. But you know you go go into the museums of Europe you know and you see it uh, I, I think United States suffers a little bit because of you know we are such a, a new nation you know we don't have the benefit of an archaeological site down the street we don't have the benefit of you know museums like the Louvre you know or or the British Museum or the Anatolia Museum and all of these these wonderful places that really speak to this ancient history that's undeniable because you know you go into these museums and, you know, you can see the Venus of Willendorf that's 35,000 years old. People really conceived of the sacred in the feminine form. And it was probably because they didn't understand the role that males played in creation. They knew that women brought forth life. They could bleed without dying. Henceforth, the world and everything that it provided for them to sustain themselves was the feminine. And I think that's why for so long, it was the feminine that was the face of God.
0: Do you think there were societies in which were out of balance too much in the feminine, as we now are on the other pole, or what?
1: Well, well, you know, look, absolute power corrupts absolutely. But what feminist scholars are saying, you know, uh, I don't think there were ever matriarchies where women controlled men, the way patriarchy has had their boot on the throat of women. We think that there were egalitarian societies, that men and women had their roles, but it was, you know, but women were also the teachers, uh, you know, women were also the adjudicators, you know, they weren't restricted to a second class role. So, you know, we're aiming for an egalitarian society now, just like we think in the best of times there was once an egalitarian society in the past. Good.
0: One thought I, that came to mind a few minutes ago when you were talking again about balance is just that, you know, so we're not saying do away with technology, we're just saying balance it. And if the Divine Feminine were more, were more balanced in collective consciousness, then we would still have technologies, perhaps even much more sophisticated ones, but they would have a much more sort of balanced purpose and application and, and not be so you know, harmful. Uh, we're not doing away with money. We just want things to be more balanced, where you know we don't have this huge polarity between the haves and the have-nots. And you could uh, probably use half a dozen other examples where it's like the, the institutions and the technologies and whatnot that we have are okay, but they just are way out of balance and, and they need to be brought into balance and they will continue, but in a much more um, benign way.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think our go- the governments, you know, have to be for the people and not the corporations. Yeah, so you know,
0: to get rid of government. It's
1: no, just- we're not getting rid of government. It's just going to really serve the people, the taxpayers, instead of everything being geared toward the benefit of the corporations, who we know so many of them don't even pay taxes, or the Mitt Romneys of the world paying fifteen percent, where you and I are probably paying twenty eight. It's all of these little practical things. Or going back to technology, will technology be used for the betterment of society or will you use... I mean, you, we see it on television all the time, how the military-industrial complex will take a new creation, a new invention, and turn it into a weapon of war. I would love to see a world where the globe... Has the globe's best interest at heart. I know people fear the idea of a global economy, but I go back to the idea of Star Trek. In Star Trek times we shared resources. It was about the common good and you know rather than there be one country that can dominate another country. I mean imagine in Africa some people don't even have clean water to drink. I mean to me that's unconscionable. I think it's unconscionable that our country could have taken us to war in Iraq on a lie, you know, or that the bankers could have destroyed our economy and nobody's paid for it. You know, it's all of these different things that the elite and the powerful can't continue to run roughshod over the needs of the many. And that's really what's happening.
0: And so you'd see, you would see all those as examples of patriarchal consciousness, which wouldn't have happened and will not happen in the future if, if the sort of the, the divine feminine
1: Values. counterbalances that. Yeah, I, if if the divine feminine values are valued in society again, if, if they become in vogue, like greed became in vogue, then we would be, we would all be acting in ways that would be for the common good. You know, I would love to see the day where greed becomes taboo, and if some, and people like the Koch brothers would be shamed and ostracized from society <laughs> you know maybe I'm getting a little crazy here but, but you know my point that you know they wouldn't be elevated you know uh, those the kinds of actions where you use your money for selfish gains rather than doing a Bill Gates kind of a thing where you give away half your wealth to help humanity because you realize that you really don't need all of that money you, you see that kind of the difference you know where, where you know where we become a collective family Family. We are in this together, you know, whether you're a woman in a burqa in Saudi Arabia or you're Hillary Clinton in the White House.
0: So on a practical level, how do we get from here to there? You know, you and I are talking about it and you talk about it all the time on your show, and you help to sort of raise awareness of, of the importance of the divine feminine and so on. And there are other speakers and authors who do the same. What can listeners do to help to bring about this sort of transformation
1: well I think we all have to do something you know I think the days of sitting on the couch and just bitching on Facebook I think we have to go beyond that. I think we all have to become social justice advocates. I think it, the easiest way to sustain momentum is to find something you're really passionate about you know maybe you're passionate about animal rights maybe it's the environment maybe it's getting out the vote um, you know whatever it is maybe it's GMOs maybe it you know doctors without borders I mean there are many million good things out there that need volunteers, that need money. I would say Get involved in something and do something. You know, give your life meaning and be of service. Do what you can. And I think if all of us start to do that in our own little spheres, I think it's sort of it, it sort of helps that paradigm shift. Uh buy less, you know, one less latte at Starbucks every week and collect that money at the end of the month and send it to a worthy cause. Donate to battered women's shelters, have a book club, do movie nights you know, show documentaries that'll educate people or, you know, read books that will evolve your consciousness and the consciousness of your friends. I get together monthly with a group, we call it Wisdom Circle, and we talk about things, you know, and we don't we don't always have to agree, but we talk about, well, what do we think uh, God is? Or, you had a, an experience of the consciousness of God? Tell us about it. We just, you know, we're trying to improve ourselves, become the best that we can be, and we sh- just shift away from this idea of uh, you know, putting all of our energy into work, into money. Um, I don't think it. We were put on this planet to work ourselves to death, and I think especially Americans, that's sort of what we've been indoctrinated to do. I think we have to start developing ourselves uh, as human beings and trying the best we can. In the in the myriad of ways that we have available to us to take responsibility for our own education, to learn, to know what's going on out there. Don't be a low information voter. Be educated. Know who you're voting for. Do they have your best interests at heart? Because so many people vote wedge issues rather than even their economic interest. So, I don't know, I think those were maybe a half a dozen, dozen different things that we can do. And, and don't feel like I'm just one person, because this is a, a cumulative effect. Because if a lot of people start doing this, call your congressman when you don't like, you know, that they're not doing anything to create jobs. I remember when the Congress switchboard was shut down, when Republicans were talking about privatizing Social Security. We could do that on every issue issue. We just have to focus our intention and just get a little bit organized because you know what? There's more of us than there are of them. We are the 99%.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. There's one more element. I I interviewed uh, Foster and Kimberly Gamble a while back who made the Thrive movie. I don't know if you've seen that, but we were talking about how back in the sixties, there were the activists who were you know protesting the Vietnam War, and then there was also a certain faction of which I was a part who, who were sort of the the meditator types, you know that felt like real social change is going to happen by going within and, and developing consciousness. and we both sort of looked at one another askance. you know the meditators are just sitting on their butts, according to the activists. The activists are just out there yelling in the streets, but they haven't really looked at themselves. And Kimberly made the point that, or maybe we both did, that these days. Um, the meditator types are becoming activists and the activists are becoming meditator types but they're not leaving their their original position, they're just adding a lot, you know tending, the the, the mystics are getting more into service, the activists are getting more into mysticism um, and that both together make a better package because, you know, you have uh, if you're established there's a verse in the Gita, established in being perform action, if you're acting from the level of pure consciousness, from the level of the intelligence that governs the universe, then your action is in accordance with nature's intentions and you don't inadvertently sort of create more harm than good while trying to change a social or economic situation.
1: Well, you know what I would label that, um, Rick. I would label that wholeness. Wholeness, goodness. Wholeness, and you know, and again, that would that would be something I would call a sacred feminine ideal. It's wholeness, yeah, and yeah, I mean, it's just like women want wholeness. Christianity told women it was okay to be like Mary. Well, you know what? We need to be like Mary and Mary Magdalene if women want to be whole, kind yeah. of a thing, you know. So yeah, I love that, and and you know what, and and it's also we have to walk our talk. How do we treat our family? How do we treat our friends? If you know. there's a little old lady in the two doors down in your apartment complex or down the street that's, you know, having trouble making ends meet, send her a casserole once a month. You know, be kind to one another, care about one another, treat each other the way we would like to be treated. You know, take a moment and think that maybe your life is okay, but somebody down the street is struggling. Is there anything you can do to maybe make their life just a little bit, you know, a little bit easier? And I think if we all did that, what different world we would be in instead of not even knowing who our neighbor is.
0: Yeah. And you know, that is really a potent spiritual practice. Spiritual practice doesn't have to be just be sitting with your eyes closed. In in traditional societies, in in India, they call it seva. And it means selfless service. And it's, you know, not just a do-gooder kind of thing. It actually is meant to diminish the ego. As you serve others, you become less uh, greedy, less less self-serving. Right. So it it can be a a very profound means of, you know, even if you're exclusively interested in in enlightenment and, you know, spiritual realization, you know, and you think the world is an illusion, getting out and actually helping people can, you know, help you attain that enlightenment um, much more. And and, and people who are kind of solely focused on enlightenment are often very narcissistic and and very kind of self-indulgent.
1: Yes, yes, you know, they, they, they perceive themselves as like the, the guru. But, you know, what you said just reminded me, uh, my husband and I took some uh, interesting classes at the Kabbalah Center here in Los Angeles recently, and uh, they're very big on being in service. And what I found really, you know, enlightening was the fact that they actually tell their students that their service to the world keeps them safe, and that's sort of their ticket to be safe in a dangerous world. The more good you do, the more the more you can be of service. That's really the way that uh, you can ensure a happy life. That you can, um, you know, ward off bad things. And it, it it's interesting, you know. And maybe there's something to it. So whether you're doing good things purely for selfish interest because you want to ward off. The negative or something bad from happening, or you do it simply because it makes you feel good or simply because you think you ought to, just do it anyway because we all benefit. Okay, well
0: I have the impulse that it might be time to wrap it up, although I'm sure we could keep bouncing this back and forth all day. It's <laughs> a lot of interesting points to keep discussing, is there anything you feel like we haven't really touched upon that you like to in interviews or in in discussing all this?
1: Well, um, no, I think we've had a really well-rounded conversation, Rick. I think we've talked about spirituality and politics and just, uh, you know, how we can be in the world, you know, living living every day, you know, as we call it, being an everyday goddess. Um, You know, I would just invite your listeners to maybe check out my books or tune into my radio show. And uh, I would love to uh, give the first three of your listeners in the United States who maybe uh, hit me up on Facebook or send me an email, I'll send them a free copy of my book, Walking an Ancient Path.
0: Cool. Well, I will put links to all those things and, and uh, you make sure that you've sent them to me. I don't know that you have, but I'll put links to all those things on uh batgap.com, on your page on batgap.com. Yeah, I see. You. Here's your link to Blog Talk Radio and your, and your website and everything. People can jump to click to be the first to get a free book.
1: <laughs> yeah, so I, I think if we if we were to sort of just encapsulate the whole conversation or what the sacred feminine is in one word, it's, it's partnership. That's what I'd like people to go away with, knowing about the sacred feminine, its partnership. It's not about crazy women who want to rule the world or dominate men. You know, it's really about uh, equality and partnership.
0: Well, you know, I think your own life is an example of that. I mean, even the fact that you say in your little bio here that... um you know, you've been married to your husband Roy for 30 years, and he's the wind beneath your wings, and you credit him for his love and support behind the scenes, enabling you to be so active in all phases of your work. So, there's a nice example of partnership.
1: True, I have to tell you, you know when I write these books, I mean I work a full-time job and to write these books, I'm up at two in the morning and when I'm got my nose to the grindstone, you know Roy helps, washes the clothes, cooks the dinner, runs the errands. He set up all the equipment with Jerry. You know, we're a true team. And uh, I, I think a partnership works for us. I see how well it can work, and I, I extrapolate that out into society.
0: Yeah, good point. We're all in this game together. Absolutely. So let me make a couple of concluding remarks that I always make. I've been talking with Karen Tate. I will be linking to all of her books and shows and website and all that from her page on batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P. If you go to batgap.com, you will see at this point about 225 other interviews all archived and indexed alphabetically, chronologically, and uh, categorically, subject-wise, as best as we can do that. Uh, you'll also see a discussion group that crops up around each interview. There'll be a link to that specific to Karen's interview and their discussions that have you know, ensued from each other interview. Uh, there is a, a link to an audio podcast so that you can just listen to this on your iPod if you like and not have to sit in front of your computer. There's a place to be notified by email each time a new interview is posted. There's a menu item there that says, Join our email list or something. There's a Donate button, which I appreciate people clicking to support this whole thing if they feel inclined. And there's a few other things. If you pull down little menus, you'll see see some other things you might find interesting, so explore it. Next week I'll be speaking with Neelam whom I interviewed a couple of years ago. Uh, she was a disciple of Papaji uh, in Lucknow. Most people listening to this will know who Papaji was. He was a disciple of Ramana Maharshi. So that'll be an interesting conversation. So thanks for listening or watching. Thank you, Karen. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you. And we will see you next week.